the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Well, here in chapter 11, things take a turn for the worse. And at the end of last class period, we got maybe four verses into chapter 11. Everything seems to be going swimmingly. Solomon has uh, great wisdom from the Lord, and this much to his credit. Remember, the Lord asked him, whatever you want, um, ask of it, and I ask and I will give of it. And so Solomon asks for wisdom, and wisdom how to lead and govern, and that manifests itself in uh, the temple, the house of... Uh, what do they call it? What's, what's the name of his house? The, it's the forest. It's good. Yeah, the forest of Lebanon. So, so much wood in his house. But it's a governmental house, and so um, you've, got, you've got government flourishing. You've got um, religion flourishing, the temple. You've got wisdom. You've got wealth. You've got everything, everything going right, and then it goes really wrong. Of course, there were cracks all the way along house of the forest of Lebanon was uh, bigger than the temple of the Lord. Um, Solomon has already intermarried with uh, pagan women. Uh, he's got many horses <laughs> and other such warnings that the scriptures give. Yeah, so there's, there's been cracks in the facade the whole way, and now finally, chapter 11, we get to it. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, uh, Sidonian and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love, not to God or to his word, but to these foreign women. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And we talked a little bit about that last week. And his wives turned away his heart. Yeah, very sad. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. So again, then, what, what then does the author mean by a heart being wholly true? And in this instance, it's, um, and I think that this is true broadly speaking, that a heart is wholly true insofar as you worship Yahweh, insofar as you worship the one who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, and then to worship other gods manifestly is to have a divided heart um, as Solomon. So his heart was not wholly true to the Lord, as was the heart of David, his father. David was fully devoted to the Lord, no idolatry. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. 
So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord, as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab. I mean, this is the one who built the temple for the Lord, and now he's built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech. And this Molech seems to be another name of Milcom. We'll, we'll look into the study notes here in just a minute and get some more background on, on these false gods. And for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. So he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. So he completely accommodates their false religions. And if that's, I mean, if this is to be taken literally, I'm not absolutely sure it is, but this line, he did so for all his foreign wives, it may just be a general truth. So whether completely literal, if so, I guess that'd be 700 wives, so 700 different pagan religious sites, well, who knows? Maybe they shared the same gods, though, so. Anyway, a lot. He was way too accommodating. And, um, you know, it's not as if he, it's not as if he turns his back on the Lord, um, in the sense of getting rid of him and just worshiping these other gods. He's just got Yahweh set up right alongside the other gods. And that, that of course, is an abomination. So, Ashtoreth, of course, we've talked about um, in the context of our earlier studies. Um, what, what happens here, even thematically, is when you have the disintegration of the godly kingship of Solomon, it, it in many respects, you see the themes that were so prevalent in Judges begin to resume where, if you remember as we went through the book of, of Judges, um, you've, got, you've got political and religious chaos occurring. Here not so much political, I mean in this, I, excuse me, um, boy what am I trying to say? You've got, you've got religious and political turmoil occurring in Judges and also here um, particularly, we're going to see um, some of the religious turmoil come about that even the prophets of Yahweh begin to be, we get these expressions, we get these stories of them um, not being good. So this, it, it, it's like this trickle down um, that happens with the king. All right, so Ashtoreth, we talked, we've talked about in the past. Now, Milcom is an Ammonite idol also called Molech. So called, you know, Milcom by one, one people, Molech by another people. And you can see the notes there in your study note. Chemosh, before entering Canaan, Israel defeated the people of Chemosh, reference to Numbers 21, who sacrificed children to their national idol. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yeah, we just don't call it Chemosh. But, I think, but Chemosh is, a, is doing just fine here in the United States. The people sacrifice their children to the national idol. Yeah, so this is um, child sacrifice taking place in, in the heart of Israel. It's just terrible. Worshipping all these false gods. Okay, so then um, verse 9. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. 
Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Well, we saw this take place with Saul. And um, David largely avoided this. Of course, his heart was united to the Lord. It wasn't idolatry that was his problem. Um, but David had his own familial problems that caused him to have a tumultuous reign. But here, here Saul's problems are religious in nature. He's turned to these false gods. Very interesting. I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. So it is bad news. It is bad news, no doubt about it. Have you heard this? Wouldn't you repent? Wouldn't you think, well, this is exactly what I deserve, and surely the Lord's going to do this thing, and I've angered the Lord, and it's time to clean up these, uh, all these temples that I've built? You're not going to do that because you're going to upset your wives and all the people and all the commerce and all the people who have gotten used to this. Plus, no leader ever likes to reverse himself because that puts egg on your face and calls him to question your ability to lead. So, while, it, on, while on the one hand we'd look at this and we'd say, shouldn't he repent? Wouldn't we repent? On the other hand, if you think about it concretely, no, he's not going to and maybe we wouldn't either. Verse 13, however, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. Now, all of this ultimately portends and points to Christ, and this is God's mercy. I mean, even though this, this quote-unquote one tribe, this reference to David and this reference to Jerusalem, I mean, all of this ultimately has to do with the line of Christ and the kingship of Christ, and that's really the fountainhead of God's mercy here. Okay, so that, um, you know, we, we've ne read nothing, nothing but, up until chapter 11, really nothing but the good times of, of Solomon. His great wealth, his great wisdom, how he's executed that wisdom, <clears throat> his worldwide fame, how the Queen of Sheba, amongst other leaders, came and consulted him and paid him handsomely. I mean, everything in terms of, like, earthly temporal blessings has just been going swimmingly. And now, um, even though the Lord isn't going to snatch the kingdom from his hand directly, but from the hand of his son, things are going to still nonetheless go poorly for him, and that um, at the hand of the Lord himself. So that's what we see next in verse 14, and we're going to see this at least in a threefold way here on this page alone. Uh, verse 14, And the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon. So this is one of the stipulations of the of the covenant. Once you've broken the covenant with the Lord, He will raise up enemies uh, to attack you. So this is the way that it worked in the Old Testament. The Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. You can drop down to the study note there. Um, escaped a punitive campaign directed by Joab and Abishai, reference to 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles. And of course, Edom is a neighboring country of Israel south of Moab. So this, this Hadad the Edomite has been around. 
and the Lord raises him up. He was of the royal house of Edom. For when David was in Edom, and Joab, the commander of the army, went up to bury the slain, he struck down every male in Edom. For Joab and all Israel remained there six months until he had cut off every male in Edom. But Hadad fled to Egypt together with certain Edomites of his father's servants, Hadad still being a little child. They set out from Midian and came to Paran and took men with them from Paran and came to Egypt, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who gave him a house and assigned him an allowance of food and gave him land. And Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh, so that he gave him in marriage the sister of his own wife, the sister of Tapanes, the queen. And the sister of Tapanes bore him Genubath. That sounds like an Egyptian name, doesn't it? his son, whom Taphanes weaned in Pharaoh's house. And Genubath was in Pharaoh's house among the sons of Pharaoh. But when Hadad heard in Egypt that David slept with his fathers, um, that is, that David had died, and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, Let me depart that I may go to my own country. But Pharaoh said to him, what have you lacked with me that you are now seeking to go to your own country? And he said to him, only let me depart. Well, obviously he's got some vengeance in mind, doesn't he? And it's one of those things like you could turn into a great movie where, you know, the, the son is being carted off to Egypt and suddenly he rises to power and the old enemies have, have um, been put away and now it's time to exact some revenge. And, make a statement and impose your will. So here is, uh, here is Hadad, one of the enemies that God raises up against Solomon. Verse 23, God also raised up an adversary to him, Rezon the son of Eliada, who had fled from his master. I'm dropping down at the study note. Who is this Rezon? When David crushed King Hadadezer's power, the latter's vassal succeeded in making Damascus an independent capital. Under Rezon and his successors, the Syrian state perennially threatened Israel until two centuries later, the Assyrians overpowered both Syria and Israel. Okay, so what, what do we gain from this? That this is, this is quite, quite meaningful because this Rezon fi fi figure factors ultimately into um, the Assyrians that will come down and destroy the northern ten tribes. All right, verse 24, And he gathered men about him and became leader of a marauding band after the killing by David. And they went to Damascus and lived there and made him king in Damascus. He was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon doing harm as Hadad did. And he loathed Israel and reigned over Syria. All right, so there's enemy number two. Verse 26, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite of Zeradah, a servant of Solomon, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also lifted up his hand against the king. 
So dropping down to the study note on 26, Jeroboam, he capitalized on the general discontent with Solomon's demand for forced labor. We remember that from an earlier section. And brought about the secession of the north. Okay, so Jeroboam, an internal enemy, two external enemies and an internal enemy, and Joab quite successful in dividing the kingdom. Verse 27, and this was the reason why he lifted up his hand against the king. Solomon built the millow. Remember we talked about that. It's we, don't, we don't know for sure, but it's probably those, the rampart changed into uh, steps. And closed up the breach of the city of David his father. The man Jeroboam was very able. And when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he gave him charge over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. You know, it's very interesting because that's the house of Joseph is a common name for the northern kingdom. Um, so, it, you know, I, it's interesting to me as I read through this, it seems to me that earlier he had used non-Israelites uh, in forced labor. And this seems to indicate that now his his greed for forced labor had extended over the Israelites as well, particularly those in the north. I mean, thus the language of the forced labor of the house of Joseph in verse 28. Verse 29, at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah the Shilonite found him on the road. Now Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment and the two of them were alone in the open country. Um, Ahijah, if you look down at 29, the footnote, perhaps through him the Lord told Solomon the consequences of the king's unfaithfulness. Right. And then it says in regard to this new garment, that symbolizes a new kingdom. So, you know, a little bit speculative, but maybe it fits the narrative. Okay, verse 31, And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you ten tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites. And they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight and keeping my statutes and my rules, as David his father did. So for your breach of the covenant, for your tearing of the covenant in half, I'm going to tear the country in half. Ten are going to Jeroboam. This all comes through the prophet uh, Ahijah. Verse 34, Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David my servant, whom I chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes, who kept and observed the covenant. Yeah. So then your study note on verse 32 says, Jeroboam was to receive ten tribes, obvious enough, Rehoboam was to rule over only one tribe, the small tribe of Benjamin, besides his own tribe of Judah. So that's the reference to this one tribe and how the one tribe becomes 
two in the technical sense, Judah and Benjamin. Benjamin and the tribe of Simeon were virtually absorbed by Judah, and the Levites had received no territory. So we looked at that before. So thus the, thus the one in two and the two in one here with um, Benjamin and uh, Judah in the south. I mean, in terms of geography, in terms of um, no doubt population, the, va the lion's share of the kingdom goes up north, goes to, goes to Jeroboam and goes away from, away from Solomon, away from Rehoboam. So uh, this, is a, this is quite the punishment, quite the indictment, of course. Then you have the impenitence of the north, and so the continued idolatry, and so they're swept away, the impenitence of the south, and the continued idolatry, and so they're occupied by Babylon, temples destroyed. We know that history as well. So, Well, unfortunately, we see all of this, and this is, uh, you know, it's very sad, it's very sad. It's, um, there's no need for this other than the idolatry of the people and the punishment of God. And you're going to have really sad episodes like, like Civil War, which we've seen rarely before, but we have seen before. And so we're going to see that kind of internal conflict happening with the divided kingdom. All right, verse 35. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and will give it to you ten tribes. Yet to his son I will give one tribe, that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. Now that's his name, that's his identity, that's his temple. And again, all of this points to David and the son of David and the throne of David that is in Jerusalem and the one who will reign in Jerusalem. And this business about putting my name in the temple. So both of these... and. I mean, I don't mean to and be too anachronistic here, but I'm going to be anyway. Um, you see that Christ is the, is the political fulfillment as the son of David and is the religious fulfillment as the new temple, as that place in which the name of God dwells. And so um, both of this, all of this, the idea that God keeps this scrap, as it were, really has to do with his promise of the coming of Christ and the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament themes in Christ. So... Really, that's the whole emphasis of the section, which is otherwise kind of, in my view, dry and depressing, if you can't tell. Um, <laughs> but the import is that we keep an eye out for God, who, despite the wickedness of his people, the wickedness of King Solomon, who of all should know better, um, God keeps his promises, God keeps his word, God keeps his Messiah in view. All right, verse 37, And I will take you, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you, and you can already see here how the ten tribes in the north are, have become Israel, now in a narrow and divided sense, but nonetheless a proper sense, Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. And I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. So that's the unfaithfulness of, of Saul and his progeny. That's who's going to be afflicted, but not forever, the Lord says. Solomon sought therefore to kill Jeroboam. <laughs> it's easier than repenting, isn't it? 
But Jeroboam arose and fled into Egypt to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. So God, um, rather graciously here, just, I mean, in the... I guess it's kind of parallel. It's not identical, but it's kind of parallel in the same way that he says, okay, Saul, you're done. Um, Now it's going to David. He said now to Solomon, you're done. It's going to uh, Jeroboam. And all the way along, God, for his part, remains gracious and extends his covenant that if you'll follow me and and you'll abide by my covenant, you'll have me only as your God, um, then, then I'll be good to you and I'll bless you. And unfortunately, virtually none of the kings take him up on this. A distinct, distinct minority. David among the three we've seen so far. Um, You can pretty much guess it's not going to go good for Rehoboam or um, Jeroboam. So... All right, the first mention then of the death of Solomon here in verse 40 and then on to 41. Now the rest of the acts of Solomon and all that he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the acts of Solomon? Well, of course they were. We wish we had that book. (laughs) There's lots of books we wish we had. Yeah, in fact, the study note directs you to 335 and um, it's worth worth just flipping back there again if if you have the study Bible. And if you don't, you should. It's great. It's a great resource. Um, but yeah, on 335, it's worth, it's worth glancing at because you have the books of history. And so um, here you can, if you just sort of skip ahead, you can see the sources cited in the books of history. Now, some of these, yeah, well, I'll read the caveat. The writers of the books of history reference numerous other collections and documents in their works The following list is not exhaustive, but it illustrates the number and variety of the documents. There is probably duplication within the list. Um, You can think of like uh, Song of Songs is called Song of Solomon. Doesn't it have some other name too? What's the other name? Hmm. Anyway, but you can see that there's duplication. Duplication. Okay, so um, the, yeah, here's the list. The book of the law of Moses, that's referenced in Joshua 1. The book of Jashar, the description of the land, the book of the law of God, the commandments of the Lord, the officials and elders of Succot. Don't you wish you had these books? I do. I know biblical scholars wish they had them even more. And the list goes on and on. There's probably 30 or 40 books. So when you find these references in Scripture, you know, is this not written in such and such? That book was extant at the time, and uh, and the author is basically telling you, hey, if you want more information, go check it out there. More detailed information, a confirmation of my account, etc. Go check it out in these other resources. The Holy Spirit in His wisdom has um, decided not to preserve these for us. And so um, we remain ignorant largely of their content. You know, if you look over on page 336, you get some commentary on this. I don't intend to read the whole thing. It says, though though many of these sources are lost, some of the titles listed above may be names for books of Scripture. So that's a possibility, too. Most significantly, there are numerous references throughout the books of history to the quote-unquote law, which refers to one or more of the books of Moses, and that's the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. This shows the continuing importance and influence of the books of Moses, or that the books of Moses played. 
and guiding the style and themes of later writers. <laughs> and that's a point that really can't be overemphasized because the Bible within the Old Testament is the Pentateuch. And really you can see the books of history and the, and the Psalms and prophetic writings. I mean, they're all referring to the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, authoritatively as the scriptures, as the covenant, as the law. So it's kind of the Bible within the Bible of the Old Testament. All the other documents and events use the five books of Moses as, as the ground, as the theological substance. I think, I think there's a slight analogy there in how we think about the Gospels as the Gospels being, um, you know, kind of the Bible within the New Testament. The rest of the New Testament is kind of commentary on the Gospels. Yeah, I think so. Uh, Solomon does a Ecclesiastes, right? And he does Proverbs and Song of Solomon. I don't think so. I, yeah, the question was, did he write Ecclesiasticus? I don't think so. I think that that's... Uh, why wouldn't it have been included in the canon if he did? I think it's, it's probably pseudepigraphal, but I'd have to look at that again. The, it was a it was a literary. I mean, this is how I understand it, and it, it, this is the most plausible theory to me. That pseudepigraphal writings are <coughs> written not really by people fraudulently claiming to be Abraham or Solomon or somebody like that. I mean, it's possible. Like, hey, look what I just dug up. <laughs> it's. I mean, it's possible, I guess. But um, it seems more likely to me. Uh, that these are written more in the style and the genre. So, so like, like um, what would Solomon say about things today? Or, you know, like, what would, what would Ecclesiastes say? Um, what would Abraham say? Like, that seems to me to be a little bit more plausible about what people were really up to. But I leave that to the experts. Your, your mileage may vary on that one. Okay, so anyway, that's a, that, there's a little field trip. If you're super interested in this, there's much more detail and data given. Um, you know, here in the Study Bible pages uh, 335 through 337, it's very interesting read, very interesting substance. If you get into all of this, it's, um, for better or for worse, it's quite tangential to the pastoral task of this day and age, so I'm not at leisure to pay that much attention to it, but it's fascinating, especially if that's your specialty. Um, all right, so that's back to chapter 1141. That's where we dove off into that field trip. Um, are these deeds of Solomon not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? Verse 42, And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. Nice biblical number there. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. All right, well, you can already tell from the next subheading, can't you, how this goes. Rehoboam's folly, and then um, the kingdom divided, and then Jeroboam's golden calves. Great! <laughs> this is like the descent into, the descent into greater depression. Because um, we're going to see the depravity of, of the people of Israel. We're going to see the the divisions religiously and politically. We're going to see the, the conniving nature of uh, politicians. 
<laughs> Does that resonate? And then we're also gonna we're also gonna see the absolute sellout of the of the prophetic office. Yeah, super, you know. So that so that analyzed analyzed from a um, from a two kingdoms, a, a kind of Lutheran theology of two kingdoms. The left hand kingdom is a disaster, and the right hand kingdom is a disaster. Kind of like today. Kind of like today. I think it's worldwide today. Yeah. Because God said that David kept his commandments, mm-hmm. even though, I mean, he was repentant in the end. He was repentant of the things he had done. He had, you know, with Bathsheba. Mm-hmm. But he counted that keeping his commandments, whereas Solomon is unrepentant to this point. Is that the difference? Yes, so that's a great question. What constitutes the keeping of the covenant? And one of the ham-fisted kinds of answers we get, it's, it's, tr- it's true, it's just one side of the coin, is that the keeping of the covenant has to be absolute, otherwise the essence of the covenant, which is the law, um, shows forth and accuses sins, and, and, and any sin is a technical violation of the covenant, I mean, is a v- real violation of the covenant, therefore the covenant could be broken, um, but, and that's helpful. It's helpful to take that and use that and, and, and see how the covenant itself then in every way points us to Christ and our need for a, a Messiah. And even, even something so simple as meeting God halfway in covenant or meeting God partway in covenant is ultimately impossible for us. So the covenant drives us to Christ and Christ is our, as our Savior, period, and to God's grace and God's grace alone. And it gets used, this, this part of the covenant, this way of the covenant, gets used um, very frequently in the New Testament, very frequently in the Lutheran church. And it's great, it's true. But it's ham-fisted to have only that. And it just simply doesn't work as you read the Old Testament to have that as your only paradigm. Because uh, for exactly the reason you brought up, David is said to keep the covenant. Was he keeping the covenant when he um, committed adultery with Bathsheba? Was he keeping the covenant when he murdered Uriah? Was he keeping the covenant when... Um, you know, any, any of the other number of uh, ungodly things that David did happen. Uh, but, but here then, what is, what is keeping the covenant? Because God explicitly says, the Holy Spirit writes through the author of 1 Kings, that David did. So what does that mean? Well, in the first place, it means that David didn't have uh, idols. Okay, so he worshipped the Lord God. There seems to even be some room for worshipping idols, but then being called out on it and immediately returning to the Lord with all your heart in repentance. You're not too far gone. By the time you hit Solomon's level, you're too far gone. And you fear your wives and your countrymen and you're losing political power and what it might do. You're too far gone into the idolatry to return to the Lord. Um, so he's in violation of the covenant, so there's a major consequence. David, by extension, isn't. Now, one thing to keep in mind, too, is that the Old Testament covenant and, and Sinai and all of that and the Ten Commandments, it also grants, permi- uh, um, it also grants a way in which sins can be forgiven. Provision for the forgiveness of sins. Um, Leviticus talks about this. He, the author of Hebrews critiques this and says, you know, it's not, it's not that the blood of bulls and goats forgave sins in and of itself. It's that it points to this ultimate forgiveness, one for all people, Old and New Testament, by Christ crucified. So we want to be clear about that. The author of Hebrews is right. But just the nude text of Leviticus says that there's forgiveness of sins granted in these, in these sin offerings. I mean, the same way we say, like, baptism forgives sins. Well, it only forgives sins because of the cross. And the same way we say the Lord's Supper forgives sins. Well, it only forgives sins because it's the body and blood of Christ 
sacrificed on the cross, now given for us to eat and to drink. And so the same, way, the same thing is true in how they spoke about the Old Testament sin offerings and sacrifices. Like they forgive sins, but only insofar as Christ did on the cross. They're the Old Testament sacraments. But there's provision for the forgiveness of sins. So what does that mean? That means that when God gives the, gives the people the covenant, it's not strictly in this absolutist sense of one single violation of the covenant is a violation of all of it, and therefore I'm selling you over to the pagans. I mean, or if that, and if that kind of read were true, then in no way, shape, or form would God say that David kept the covenant, you see. So keeping the covenant ultimately is, it's frankly within the definition of God, and it's within the purview and opinion of God as to whether or not you've kept it. But the essential part is no idolatry or an immediate fleeing from idolatry when it happens, back to the Lord. And then a, a, a repentance for one's sins, insofar as one is given to repent. And, um, and a blotting out of those sins and iniquities by, by virtue of uh, the sacrificial system acting as sacrament and ultimately faith in the Messiah. So David has faith in the Messiah. He has faith in God's promises. He has faith that the blood sacrifices point to the all-atoning blood. David is, keeps his heart with God and keeps the covenant with God then in that sense. And that's really the other side of the coin. Without that, you end up saying like, None of, the, none of the people under the Old Testament covenant could actually be saints, could actually be believers in Christ. And of course they are. Okay, I saw, I, battling hands here. So uh, uh, you were first in the back. And um, you said when, uh, when God says to Solomon Well, yeah, I mean, in the, yeah, that's a good question. It's a good question. Well, I think that's what he did say. I think, I think yeah, I, I think that that's really the risk is you, um, even when you, you know, who knows? Unbelief's a, a twisted and perverted thing. Um, who knows, who knows how, how Solomon internalized that? But I think, I think, strictly speaking, where you see God execute threats and you see people repent, from time to time he relents and takes away those, those threats, which are sure and certain and going to happen, but once the repentance happens, God relents and you know, leaves behind him a blessing instead of a curse, that kind of thing. Yeah, I don't know what I don't know what he understood or not. In theory, he should have, because that's the nature of. Yeah, that's the nature of the theology, old and new, is that is that God, you know, God calls out and accuses our sin, but when we repent, He forgives and makes blood atonement for us and uh, blots out our iniquities. I mean, even all that language is Old Testament language, and um, you know, Solomon. My, my read on it is that, um, well, and I think this too, maybe, sorry, in another vein, I'm a little scatterbrained on this, but in another vein, um, 
There are sometimes temporal consequences even when repentance takes place. David, takes, uh, David repents truly and genuinely of the ordeal with Bathsheba and Uriah and there is still the temporal consequence of the death of his son. So, you know, so as we factor all of these things in, it's like, it's like, could Solomon have repented? Yes, right? Except for he didn't want to. Would the, co- would the temporal cost have been very high for Solomon to repent and start, start getting rid of the idolatry in Israel? Absolutely, profoundly high. Maybe too high than he was willing to cost, uh, pay, I mean, sorry. And then, and then even if he did all of that, would the Lord, is there any guarantee that the Lord would relent and keep the kingdom undivided, keep the kingdom in his hands, so to speak, or in the hands of his son? Um, no, there's no guarantee. So who knows? Who knows? Solomon may have looked at all of these different angles and just been like, ah, ah, that's, well, that's what's going to happen. Who knows what he was thinking? He may have been so far gone into the idolatry of, oh, I better pray extra hard to Chemosh to see if he can do anything about this. You know, who knows? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to think that way. I mean, the comment is, you know, how do you, re- how do you, if I could just paraphrase, how do you reconcile this great wisdom that Solomon had and the utter foolishness? And, yeah, and I mean, well, the text, strictly speaking, says nothing about God blinding him or hardening him. It's quite obvious that he is blind and hardened. Uh, my read on that, for what it's worth, I think, I mean, we can, it's open to all kinds of considerations and ponderings. But, you know, my read on that is, all the wisdom that Solomon had wasn't necessarily spiritual wisdom. It wasn't necessarily, yeah, it was, a, it was predominantly a kind of worldly wisdom, a, a wisdom of governance and guiding God's people and making judgments between them. The way I kind of read that is you can have all the wisdom in the world and still be foolish. Kind of a, yeah, kind of a first, uh, what is it? Yeah, first Corinthians one kind of theology where, you know, the, the most brilliant people on earth by and large aren't, Christians, the most brilliant people. So you get this paradox. The most brilliant people on earth are largely fools. And numerically speaking, maybe a greater number of fools, are, earthly speaking, are actually wise unto salvation, spiritually wise, spiritually brilliant. Yeah. Okay, I, did I see another hand? Or, oh, I'm sorry. Okay, Chris, you're, yeah, please. And to me, it seems like all this goes back to what, I think it's Paul that talks about, you don't sin more. So that grace can abound more. <laughs> right. So it almost seems like the God's telling people, you know, you need to keep on the straight and narrow, and you repent often. You're okay. It's when you say, "Hey, no, I'm going to go my own way." And it, you you go down the road to destruction faster and faster and faster. Yeah. Like Paul says, you know. Yeah, and it's not to say that our individual personal sins don't matter. They obviously do. They obviously do. And insofar as they affect our neighbor, they matter more and more, you know, like increasingly more and more. And when you have a figure like Solomon, who's, you know, ostensibly in charge of both kingdoms, the left and the right-hand kingdom, the political sphere and the religious sphere, his sins are going to be amplified. They're going to hurt more and more people and... And that's what you see going on. So with great authority and with great privilege comes great responsibility. And where, where you fail in that, then God indicts. You know. 
there are many things that, that God overlooks in the scriptures. He overlooks the polygamy of the fathers, I mean, quite famously. There are hints and allusions in certain stories that kind of reveal how widespread the household idols really are. And while everyone is ostensibly worshiping Yahweh, everybody's got their little household idols just in case. You know, and you get this sense too. And I think the study Bible even said there's like one period in all of the history of Israel from which they haven't found these household idols. I mean, they were ubiquitous. So God is, God is um, in the Old Testament, I think God is presented as very, very fair and yet also very, very gracious. And, and gracious, I don't want to give the false impression here, but even more gracious to personal, individual kinds of shortcomings than to those sins that continue to spread throughout and do greater and greater harm to others, why does he, why does he sort of snap, as it were, against a guy like Solomon, but not against you know, the, maybe the people? Because when you look at what Solomon is doing, the nature of his breaking of the covenant is such that it's leading countless others into breaking the covenant as well. And so God acts so decisively and so definitively. Whereas, whereas maybe there's uh, more grace and leniency, the more the sins tend to just be held within the individual subjects, within the individual families. I don't know. It's an interesting thing to, to wrestle with and think through as you look at the text, because why is he lenient here, and this is no big deal, and these people are, are called people of God, but from our vantage point, they would kind of die with impenitent sin, you know, that kind of thing. It's, it's really kind of a challenging way of, um, of thinking about the justice of God and the actions of God. Um, I, su I suppose just to try to tie it up in a neat, tidy little boat, God is God. God judges as he judges. He has mercy on whom he has mercy. We don't want to presume upon that on the one hand. On the other hand, we can take great comfort in that. Yeah. And, and I think we can see even from a text like this that God threatens and warns with the hope that we'll repent and turn. Certainly if Solomon repented and turned, God would um, receive him back. Temporal consequences in place or not. But yeah, that's, that's the great tragedy of impenitence. Okay, and then I saw another hand in the back here. Yeah, there are, there are statements like this in the scriptures that would seem to indicate that um, on the one hand, he was impenitent unto death. This is how he was unto death. Con I mean, part of the controversy here, though, is but slept with his fathers, which is usually kind of an honorific way of saying died in the household, you know. Um, the argument goes back and forth. And then and the argument of Solomon's personal salvation goes back and forth and then ties in deeply with, well, what about these books of the scriptures that he wrote and what's the timeline of his writing these? Um, because perhaps if he wrote one of these on his deathbed, maybe he was converted. We all want, the bottom line is we all want Solomon in heaven. That's it's really the bottom line of the whole thing. We, we want him in heaven. It would be a terrible tragedy. And I, I mean, look, I don't know what to make of all of the data. And I know there's data and, and you can quote this verse or that verse or this timeline or that timeline. It goes back and forth. The bottom line is we all want him to be there. We all hope he is there. Overall, my own personal read on it, for whatever it's worth, is I suspect he is there. I do. I suspect he's in heaven. Um, the quotations used of him um, and allusions used of him in the New Testament seem to be 
largely positive. You know. um, take that for what it's worth. <laughs> so we'll, we will all see soon enough. <laughs> Solomon up there or not. Yeah. All right, so, so great, great temporal consequence and great temporal tragedy here. Another way to view this is that God loves his people enough to chastise them. And chastising uh, such a public figure as Solomon and then the, and splitting the kingdom. And, and I think sometimes this is something we don't consider too, that sometimes in, in the disaster um, that, that's left, the punishment of God, that God is doing this not, not in a merely punitive sense, though it certainly is punitive, but also in a sense that the, the common man, the common person, the common Israelite might come to his senses and say, well, if God won't even spare the king, this man who he's blessed so much, he might not spare me. I should repent. Or if this is how it goes, if this is, if this is idolatry on the grand scale and God's punishment of idolatry on the grand scale, maybe I should humble myself and repent. And I think that that's ultimately why God punishes. I read some funny thing on Twitter that was like, it was a stupid comment, but there's this thing called getting ratioed where you, you know, you're, the people who like your text is so much smaller than the people who comment on it. <laughs> yeah, and it was, like, it was like ratio, getting ratioed is proof that people care. I mean, <laughs> that was funny. But, 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 I mean, what struck me about that is, is that sometimes I think we all look at the, at the disaster imposed upon us by God, rightfully on account of our sins, and we need to, we need to kind of see that in the lens of, that's because God cares. It's because God cares. And if God cares and will punish on this grand scale, then, then I should do two things. I, sh I should repent so that I can escape that punishment that I deserve, be forgiven, and then I can see then that he actually cares. He actually is in control. And though it looks like chaos and disorder to me, it, it, looks, like, it looks like punishment to him for his own good purposes, to call many sons to repentance and to glory and thus to have his good and gracious will, as strange as it is to our ears, actually through the, through the punishment. He's working repentance and he's working salvation. So I think that that's, a, that's an important way for us to, we can kind of look at like, okay, how would the average Israelite have taken these events? How can we take these events? How can we overlay this on our own you know, decay here in the West and, and decay and division in our country in specific? How can we respond to that individually and as congregations, as the people of God? So repentance, seeing that God cares, seeing that God's working these things precisely so that people will repent and come to their senses, be restored to him. All right, well, there's my sermon on that. <laughs> were, were there any other hands or any other comments? Okay. Um, we've got just a little bit of time. Let's see if we can get a little bit into Rehoboam's folly. Rehoboam went to Shechem. Now, of course, this is the son of Solomon. For all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. I mean, this is, this is going to be a big disappointment for him. Because he is hoping, I mean, he has assumed up, you know, his life up to this point, up to this decree of God, that the, that the kingdom is his. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon... Now, isn't that interesting, too, this parallel? Because, of course, uh, David had to flee on account of Saul when God told Saul his time was up and it was going to David. And now Jeroboam has to flee on account of God telling Solomon his time is up and that, 
that Jeroboam's going to be the next guy, except for this key difference. Jeroboam is no David. All right, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt, verse 3, and they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, your father made our yoke heavy. Okay, a reference to the forced labor that we read about earlier. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. Which is actually, a, I don't know, it's pretty incredible given that, I mean, who knows what's going on here, but it is pretty incredible. Verse 5, he said to them, go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. In other words, I've got to think about this. It's interesting that Jeroboam does this, of course, because the Lord's told him the kingdom is his. So is this sort of humility on his part, a desire to keep, keep and retain unity, or is this some kind of scheme or scam? You know, I don't know. Does he know that there's no way that Rehoboam's going to do that? I mean, who knows? It is, it is also a little crafty, because what's, what's going on here in the, in the politics of Israel and the national identity of Israel is this, this subtle or not-so-subtle likening of, of Saul to Pharaoh. And this, hey, Pharaoh held us in bondage, and now you're holding us in bondage kind of rhetoric going on. Verse 6, the ki Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon his father while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them, when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. This is a great chapter. I know the Bible's not supposed to be about this, but it still is. Um, this is a great chapter on leadership, really. I know it's quite tangential to the main thrust and, and the main point, which is uh, both of the historical narrative and in showing forth Christ, the true king of Israel. Um, but that doesn't mean it's not there. What should, I mean, A, it's great that Solomon, who's the wisest of the whole world, had a council. <laughs> I mean, that's, there, there's wisdom right there. Is there's wisdom enough to know that you don't know it all. One of the most brilliant things that the Lutheran Church in America has ever come up with is the Board of Elders. It's fantastic. It's really the council for every pastor. It's, it's just the most, uh, to me, it's like the most treasured possession in all the congregation. Um, you know, that doesn't come to us straight out of the Bible, I mean. The thing that we've basically arranged by human arrangement. Um, but this is, this is exactly... So Solomon, the wisest man in the world, has, this, has a council. And it's a council of old men. It's great. And he comes and he says, how do you advise? I mean, it's perfect. Everything's going great. And then look what they say. This is servant leadership. You know, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them, look at the emphasis, and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. So you serve them, they'll serve you. I mean, this is the symbiosis of leadership and being led. Like, this is, this is how it works in harmony. So the counsel that he gets is priceless. Verse 8, but, but he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. Bad, 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 bad. And this has a lot to do with the generationalism and the tribalism and that kind of thing that happens generation to generation. Terrible. When you're a young man and you're going into leadership, listen to the old men. 
Verse 9, and he said to them, what do you advise that he answer this people? Uh, what do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father put on us? Oh, gosh. And here is so young men. And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. <laughs> oh my gosh. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Oh, this is going to work. This is going to be great. Yes, this is so stupid. I mean, you accuse my father of being too heavy. I'll show you what heavy is. Ugh. So this is the antithesis of wisdom. And this is also, I mean, this is great. The, the wise and seasoned old men versus the young, hot-headed men. And... Uh, and Jeroboam, or excuse me, Rehoboam proves himself to be a fool in following the counsel of the latter rather than the former. I got to memorize that though. My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. <laughs> that's, a great, that's a great line. Oh, just by the absurdity. Okay, verse 12. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king said, come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly and forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him. He spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. So, you know, that, that read on things says that, uh, at least at this point, I mean, it's hard to believe based on what comes, but at least at this point, um, Jeroboam's approach seems to be genuine and legitimate, and he's willing to humble himself and serve Rehoboam. Even though the Lord promised he would rule, he's willing to, like, submit himself. I mean, it's very Davidic in that sense. Uh, very humble, and God will raise me up in due time, whatever. Uh, but of course, God, God arranges things right away so that Rehoboam is true to his nature, foolish, and he follows the young men, and he totally turns off uh, Israel, all of Israel, and the ten tribes to the north in particular, and thus setting up um, the truth of what the Lord spoke to Ahijah, that Ahijah spoke to Jeroboam, that Jeroboam is in fact going to rule the north. The kingdom is going to be divided. So, very sad. Very sad, and it shows, um, shows the deadliness and danger of, the, of one foolish king listening to a bunch of foolish young men. Instead of the wise old ones, I guess. The older I get, the more I like this. <laughs> Just teasing. Okay, that's it for today. We'll pick up next week uh, with The Kingdom Divided, chapter 12, verse 16. It's unfortunately not going to get any less depressing. All right, the Lord be with you. Bye-bye.